You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everyone. This is the last call for our summer school class, the final one of 2023. And we really mean it. Last call. Because the class is tonight, August 14th, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And the class is called Universal Salvation is Not Modern, Universal Salvation in Historical and Systematic Perspective. And it's going to be taught by Dr. Roberto de la Noval. This class will introduce participants to the Christian eschatological position. Woo! Slow down there, cowboy. We'll probably hope, hopefully, we'll also tell you what that even means of universal salvation, one of the most hotly debated topics in theology. This is important throughout Christian history. Yeah, you wouldn't think so, but it is. But anyway, this is your last chance to get the class during the pay what you can window because at 9 30 p.m. Eastern time tonight, it'll cost 25 bucks to download. And if you can't make it live, don't worry because you can still get it on your computer right now. So you, you buy it in the pay what you can window and then you can, you can watch it later. Right. And that's fantastic. Now to sign up, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash summer school. And if you join our community, Society of Normal People, you can get access to this class and all of our classes for just $12 a month. And for that, you can go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. On today's episode, we're talking about the book of Ruth with Reverend Dr. Judy Fentress Williams. Yep. Judy is a professor of Old Testament at Virginia Theological Seminary and also the author of Ruth in the Abington Old Testament commentary series. Yeah, so we had a great conversation. Let's get into it. In this story, it is saying there is a moment in our history where we would not have made it without the stranger, the other, the foreigner. And when we look at the genealogy, it's also saying the foreigner isn't so foreign. The foreigner is our distant cousin. And so how do we reconcile our connection with our inclination to separate and divide? Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Welcome, Judy, to the podcast. It's great to have you. It is great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. We're excited to jump into Ruth. So could you first walk us through the plot of the book and introduce us maybe to the main characters, just so that we have a a feel for what we're talking about here? Absolutely. So this is a short book. It's only four chapters. We like to describe it as a novella in that it has this really lovely, complete structure, but the story begins in Bethlehem with a family. We're first introduced to the father, Elimelech, and then his wife, Naomi, and then their two sons, Malin and Killian. They're in Bethlehem in the area of Ephrata, 
And that word itself means fruitful. And so the place names, fruitful and Bethlehem, which is house of bread, suggest plenty. So that's where we begin. And then a famine comes and the family is forced to migrate to Moab. We know from the history of the Bible that Moab is not the place you want to be because they're foreigners and they're foreigners that we particularly don't like. But because of the famine, the family is forced into this space. And while they're there, first the father, Elimelech, dies. And then we have the two sons, Malin and Kilian, who marry Moabite women. Their names are Ruth and Orpah. The story says that after about 10 years, they've been there about 10 years, both Malin and Killian die. So in addition to this famine, we have all of this death of the men in the family. Now we have Ruth left with Orpah and Ruth. The next action that happens in the narrative is that Naomi hears that now there's food back home in Bethlehem. And so she makes this decision to return to her homeland, and she begins the journey back with her two daughters-in-law, these two Moabite women. And the story goes that somewhere on the way back, she stops and decides she's going to send them back home to their mothers, and they protest. They want to stay with this family that they've married into. They want to honor this commitment they have. And there's this back and forth. Naomi finally prevails with Orpah, and Orpah leaves to go back to her family. And then we have this iconic scene where Ruth says, no, 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 I'm going to stay with you. Your people, my people, your God, my God, where you die, there I die, there I will be buried. And she goes on and makes this huge oath. So Naomi doesn't have anything left to fight that off. They return to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then Ruth engages in a practice we would describe as gleaning. She is able to go to places where people are harvesting. And in accordance with biblical law that we have in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, the harvesters are forbidden to harvest everything. They have to leave the edges and the corners for the widows and the orphans. And so Ruth goes out on behalf of her mother-in-law to harvest, and she just so happens to be leaning in the field of a man named Boaz. And the name evokes this strength. We'll talk a little bit more about these names in a moment. And then um, Boaz just happens to come to the field on the day that Ruth is out there, and he notices her and asks about her. And he's told that she is a Moabite and that she's been working hard all day. And he immediately speaks to her and calls her daughter and invites her to sit down and to rest and to eat with the workers. And then he instructs the workers not to bother her, not to um, molest her, not to make her time there difficult. And furthermore, to pull out a little grain so that she gets some extra. Ruth goes home at the end of the day and shows her mother-in-law what she has. And her mother-in-law says, where have you been? When she mentions the name of this relative, Naomi knows that this is someone who is related to them, someone who can stand in the role of what we would call a kinsman redeemer. So he can help their situation. In the next chapter, Naomi instructs Ruth on what she wants her to do. She has a plan that she has hatched and she wants Ruth to execute it. 
She instructs her to put on her good clothes, to put oil on her skin, and then to go to the threshing floor at night. This is where Boaz is stationed. This is where people would be separating the grain from the chaff. It is a place where women would not be. She's instructed to go at night, wait until he lays down to see where he lays down to make sure no one sees her and then to stealthily get there. And when she gets there, she's instructed to uncover his feet. And Naomi then says, and he'll tell you what to do. And so Ruth does as instructed. She gets out there and then she uncovers Boaz's feet. And the story goes that Boaz is startled when this happens and asks who she is. And she names herself or self-identifies for the first time in the story and makes a request of him. So she doesn't do exactly what Naomi tells her. She doesn't wait. She says, my name is Ruth. Put your cloak over. Cover your maidservant. She's asking for protection. Boaz offers a blessing and tells her this act of faithfulness is greater than all the other things he's observed. He will take care of her. He tells her to stay the night because um, he doesn't want anyone to see her, which is a little curious because in the next scene, he's in the morning, he fills her cloak with grain um, for her to take back to her mother-in-law. And so in the end of this chapter, she goes back literally carrying Boaz's seed in this garment she's wearing. And Naomi knows that everything is going to work out. The next day, Boaz goes to the gate of the town where people would gather, um, where the elders would appear, where business transactions happen. And he waits because before he can fulfill this obligation to Ruth, he has to deal with the next of kin. There is someone who has the right to redeem Naomi and Ruth and their land before he. And so he waits for this man to come. And when the man comes, he greets him and says, I have this opportunity for you to redeem the land of our kinsman, Elimelech. And the man says, of course, I want to redeem it. And then Boaz slips in, oh, yes, and when you do, you will also acquire um, this Moabite widow. And now all of a sudden, the relative doesn't want to do it, which frees Boaz up to do it. Boaz marries Ruth. And upon marrying her, they have a child. And this child's name is Obed. And that child at the end of the story gets placed in Naomi's bosom. And so the line that would have been cut off with the death of Naomi's husband and sons is restored through Ruth and Boaz, this kinsman redeemer. Ruth is blessed by the women. Boaz is blessed by the men. And then the very end of the story gives us this lovely little genealogy, which takes us to King David. So we have a very short, compact story that is loaded with a great narrative arc, great, great dialogue, and there is meaning in all of these names. Thank you for that wonderful summary of the book. I, a couple of things just come to mind here, and I guess we're getting into sort of like historical, critical kinds of questions here, but maybe just a, a cluster of questions 
like, why was this book even written? Do you think? I mean, it's hard to tell, you know, but like, why was it written? And there's probably more than one opinion on that. But also, do you think this is primarily historical or fictional? And who cares? Like, what's the difference between those two? What difference would it make? Yeah, those are great questions. So I would start by saying, instead of asking why was this book written, we may want to ask why was the story told? The Israelites were an oral culture. And so this is a story that was told. And so the origin of the story and the actual writing of the story committed to some kind of permanent form could have been separated by generations. And that matters because when we think about dating in a historical critical method, and we want to figure out when it may have been written, that may have very little to do with how long the story had been in circulation. So if I think about the story of Ruth, we are hard-pressed to designate this story as history. All of the names are symbolic. Elimelech means my God is king. Malin and Killian mean sickness and destruction, which is a sign about what's going to happen to them. Yeah, what mother would name their kids that, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then we have Ruth and Orpah, and they're all kinds of options for Ruth's name. It could mean friend, but I love the idea of Ruth meaning watering because it's against the backdrop of this famine. And there's a way in which Naomi's whole life is dried up. We have this mother, this wife, this matriarch, Naomi, whose name means pleasant at the beginning of chapter one. But if you remember when she comes back to Bethlehem with this Moabite daughter-in-law, the women say, is this Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara or bitter because the Almighty has, has treated me so bad. Orpa means back of neck, this signifying her action to go away. Boaz, pillar, strength, and then Obed meaning servant. So we're hard pressed to tie it to any specific moment in history. The names are highly symbolic, tied more to their role in the story than what they may have been named as historical characters. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. 
You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. And there are a number of moments in the story that seem to be more appropriate to what we would see in a comedy. For example, Ruth goes to glean, and it just so happens that she ends up in the field of Boaz. And an additional coincidence is that Boaz actually happened to show up at the field on that day. Pete asked the question of, of why do you think it was written? And we, and we went down the path of it being more likely that it you know wasn't historical, the names and the meaning. So can you talk more about the meaning of it? And I think we may need to comment too on where the placing of the book in the Christian and Jewish canons, because I think that's going to be tied to this as well. Absolutely. So I like the argument or the theory that Ruth is written or comes into its final form at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which would have been the sixth or fifth century. Now, the reason I like that is because of all of the anti-foreign marriage material that we get in Ezra and Nehemiah, and particularly Ezra, where we have this, this very strange account of the people hearing the law, realizing they're not supposed to marry foreign women. And then it simply kind of says, and they sent their wives and children away. How does that work? What happened to them? Did they not have any obligations to their family? It's a, it's a strange- It's not just you can't marry them. Right. It's you have to get rid of them. Yes. And it was just this strange moment in the story where they all go away. What? How did that happen? And I wonder if we have in that account, this desire on the part of the people, this movement towards this heightened sense of nationalism and embracing of insiders and outsiders that goes a little too far. And in the story of Ruth, we have this counter narrative that essentially says, y'all wouldn't even be who you were without this foreigner. And not just any foreigner, a Moabitess. And so the Moabites are people that the Israelites had a special disdain for. And and we have scripture references that tell us, I want to say something like Deuteronomy 23, that essentially says, you shall not see to their well-being so long as they live. Yeah, they didn't like Moabites. At all. And then we also have that story in Genesis 19 about the origins of the Moabites. And so one of the things we learn in the Bible, how do you disparage someone? How do you make someone other? Well, you disparage them by, you know, putting them in some kind of sus 
suspect sexual situation. So here we have Moab and Ammon coming out of this incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. Yeah. Could you flesh out a little bit more who the Moabites were? Like, where are they located and stuff like that? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It just occurred to me, I was talking about Ruth being dated around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah without stating the other theory. That is, that Ruth would have originated around the time of King David, that there would have been folks who questioned David's heritage, his lineage, and that this is the story to say, yes, he has a Moabite in his family, but she was a good one, and she was faithful, and she served our God. And so, this is why you have Ruth characterized as this woman who has faithfulness. The word there is hesed, which is a word that usually is applied to God. So, um, this is extremely high praise for a woman and a woman of Moabite origins. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Judy, that there are very often times, as you know, multiple explanations for things like when something was written and why it was written, just because the data aren't there. We we can't really nail it down. But you prefer the later, like, post-exilic Ezra-Nehemiah date. I do. Okay. I yeah. am also happy to live with a theory that says the story originated at the time of David and then gets reused in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. I mean, essentially, that's what we do with biblical stories. We're taking stories that came from one context and applying them and using them in another one. Yeah, we do that with the Bible and the Bible does it within itself. Exactly. There are a lot of these, I think we're hopefully, because I have a lot of questions, there's some cultural idiosyncrasies from what's the significance of a Moabite to the uncovering of the feet. And there's a lot going on that if you don't know the culture, you could be really confused. But before we get there, can you just comment though on, because I do want to kind of tie it a bow on on the placement in the Christian and Jewish canon, because I, I find that really interesting as well. Absolutely. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth belongs to a collection of writings that we call the Festival Scrolls or Megilot. There are five books that are associated with holidays. And so, in that collection, we have Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Ruth, Esther, and Lamentations. So, Ruth is associated with the Festival of Weeks, this harvest festival, and that makes sense. We've got all this harvest going on in the book. And so, this book is chanted at that festival every year. So, when people celebrate this holiday, they remember this story. So, in the Hebrew Bible, we would see Ruth in that collection, that Megilot scroll, in the third division of the Bible, which we call Ketuvim. So, remember, we have what's called an Old Testament, which comes from the Hebrew Bible. The same books, different order, and a slightly different count um, that shouldn't be distressing to any of us. First and Second Samuel counts as one. First and Second Kings counts as one. The Minor Prophets count as one. But all the same material. But the Hebrew Bible is divided into three divisions, the Torah, the first five books of the Pentateuch, and then that second section is what we would call the prophets. So, think Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then the books we would call the prophets, the three major prophets and the twelve minor. Everything else is in that third division, the Ketuvim, and that would have been the part that came together last. So, from that perspective, we would think of Ruth as a later book. However, 
The first translation of the Bible was from Hebrew into Greek, in what we call the Septuagint. And when that translation took place, Ruth was moved. Why? Because the book begins in the days that the judges ruled. And the book ends with a genealogy that takes us to David. So based on those two time markers, Ruth also fits nicely in between Judges and Samuel. So it's at the end of Judges, we come to Ruth, and then Ruth ends with the David genealogy. And sure enough, in Samuel will be introduced to David. So those are the two different places where we would encounter Ruth. And those places are really, I mean, they're just different rationales for placing that book in different places in the canon. That's right. And apparently ancient people didn't get all hung up about it. No. Right? No. I mean, that's interesting. No. We might, but they don't. <laughs> no. Right? But that's because, once again, we have a narrower view of Scripture because we come from a writing culture. When we think about these collections, is this Bible is a collection of writings, of stories. And so, it could have ended up in a number of different orders. That's helpful to me. Not that it's a conclusive or anything, but it is helpful because, again, in my tradition, it would have been super important that we thought of Ruth as a historically accurate tale because of the connection with David and because of the overall view of the Bible. And the placement in the canon would have supported that interpretation way more than the Jewish Hebrew Bible, which, you know, the Ketuvim, the writings, you wouldn't really think of that as being a historical section of biblical books per se. And so that's right. But I think I think the Bible, when we ask the question about historical accuracy in the Bible, it's an invitation for us to be more critical of how we understand history. I like to tell my students that in many books of the Bible, history is in service to the narrative. That what matters most is telling this story about how God did something with God's people that they are not writing for us. They're not writing a historical volume for us. And so, their concerns about getting all the details right is not a concern in the way that it is for us. And the reason that it is for us is, in many ways, our sense of truth is limited to historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Ah, to live in the modern world. Yeah, we can't let go of historical accuracy and still have the Bible be meaningful. And that's that's a narrow space to live in. It is, and it's a problem once you start reading the Bible and realizing <laughs> things don't fit together very nicely. But. Right, right. Or if you see two accounts of the same thing, and then you have to figure out, well, which one's right? And I always say, no, the answer is yes. Yeah. Right. Well, in light of that and in that spirit, I think let's maybe dive into the narrative because I do think there are some confusing cultural pieces here. So maybe overall, we can first talk about this role that Boaz plays. And there's there's also the other person in the narrative of this kinsman redeemer and this Levite marriage. And what's going on there that maybe we would be missing without that cultural context? Okay, so much. We have to remember in the ancient Near East, that land and property belonged in the hands of men, went from father to son. And so, in the vast majority of cases, a woman needed to have either a husband or a son in whose name the land would be assigned on her behalf. We have some exceptions to this. Um, we can talk about the daughters of Zulofahad later if we have time. But, but what we have in this story is Naomi losing her husband 
and then her sons. So now what Leverett marriage affords is the opportunity for a close living, the closest living male relative to marry this widow and have a child with her. And that child then stands in as proxy for the father, um, maintains the name of this deceased father so that the wife, the widow, can inherit land and be provided for. We have a nice account of marriage in Genesis with Judah and Tamar. And what's interesting in this account is that Ruth is younger. We know that Naomi is older because she goes on and on about the fact that she's too old to have another son. So we have now Ruth, who will be the person who will enter into this Leverett marriage with Boaz. Boaz marries her and has a child with her. And now that child will stand in the family line in the place of the deceased husband of Ruth, who was Malin. Now, what's interesting is that it's not clear that if the Moabites are persona non grata, how it is that Ruth gets to be in this Leverett marriage in the first place. Yeah, I mean, especially since she's not, yeah, she's not related. That's right. There's no kinsmanship going on here. That is right. Wait, so go back. What's the complication with that? Say, say more about why. She's a Moabite. Right, but but is that on that, on the fact that she's a Moabite or just the fact that she's not kin? That she's not... Related to Boaz. Well, she's related. The only way she's related to Boaz is through Naomi. Through marriage to Naomi's son, right. correct. That's right. So Naomi is being helped by Boaz's union with Ruth. Absolutely. So she's doing a solid for her mother-in-law. She's doing something that... Naomi could not do. She's the one who goes gleaning. She's the one that goes out to the threshing floor. She's the one that has this child with Boaz. And then the child gets placed in Naomi's bosom. And all of the folks in the town say, a child has been born to Naomi. Yeah. So then this really is an act of, in a lot of ways, I mean, I think it is for Ruth's sake as well, but in a lot of ways, it is an act of service to Naomi to provide a means of care for Naomi and and legacy there. Yeah. So think again now about all the places in the story where Ruth is described as being faithful, this faithfulness that she has given or demonstrated to her mother-in-law, first by coming back with her in the first place, gleaning for her, doing all of these things for her mother-in-law. Another aspect here of cultural issues, and if I don't ask this, my students are going exactly. to kill me. It has to be. They're going to kill me if I don't <laughs> Let me guess so, what happens on the threshing floor. Yeah, yeah what's exactly. the uncovering of the feet? I mean, we, we read all the notes in the study Bibles that say, yeah, it depends on how conservative the study Bible is, how far they want to <laughs> go with exactly this. exactly right. So explain what you, she uncovers his feet. Yes. Yeah, so feet is a euphemism for men's genitals. So think about Isaiah 6. You know, in the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And you have these seraphim flying around with six wings. Two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. They're probably covering their middle section, their loins. Right, right. And with As two, is appropriate, float. I think. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that'd be yes. weird if it's like, let's cover up our feet, but not our genitals. Let's leave that just <laughs> hanging out. 
Exactly. This is a better decision. <laughs> and so here in this story, she says, uncover his feet and then he will tell you what to do. Now, what happens in the story is that he's startled in the middle of the night. But before we get there, I can't skip the best part. So in the original languages, the pronouns get messy. Naomi actually is saying to Ruth at one point in this narrative, then I will go down. So it's like, who's going down to the threshing floor, Ruth or Naomi? And so you have all of these notes that say, well, this is a very, very ancient pronomial suffix. And it looks like it says I, but it actually means you. And that is a legitimate explanation. But it is also possible that when we look at the overall structure of this story, that something else is going on. Let's go back to the origin of the Moabites, where you have Lot's two daughters who say, look, we've got to do something so that our line is preserved, so that we don't just die out. And so they sit there and they say, we're going to wait until our father gets drunk and you will go in tonight and then I will go in tomorrow night. So here you have in Genesis 19, the origin of the Moabites happens when these two women conspire to continue the line by doing what needs to be done with the man who's a little drunk. In other words, you have the UI interplay. Yes. And so in, there's in Genesis story. 19, where the Moabites originated, and now you're seeing, like, I guess you're seeing an intentional allusion. An allusion to that story. Oh, so, I'm, that's a much better explanation for me. Than- I like that. Yes. So that my question is, how do the Moabites get reincorporated into the story of Israel? You could argue in the same way they came out. You have this origin story, which is the explanation for how the Moabites are excluded or why they are other. And in the story of Ruth, you've got a kind of acknowledgement of that origin tale in the story of how Ruth will become Boaz's wife. And let me just pause here because I think one of the things we need to acknowledge in biblical story of Moab and Ammon and Edom and all of these places that become these other nations and their enemies, that these people are all related, right? Edom is Jacob's brother Esau. Ammon and Moab are Lot's sons slash grandsons. So one of the things I love about the Bible is, you know, the people who are your enemies are actually your cousins. And how does that help us think about our enemies today, or who is other. These are constructs that we carefully form, that we have stories about to justify why we don't like these people. And we have a great story. Well, now we have a story that asks the question, or perhaps says, and and this is why maybe we should start embracing these people. In the story of Ruth, Ruth is the person who brings life to Naomi's situation. Okay, anyway, back to the feet. So, (laughs) sorry, they're on the threshing floor. Ruth uncovers his feet and he is startled. It says, and there's a woman at his feet right there. She's right there. All right. And so now everyone wants to know what happened. Yeah. And I don't know. Oh, I wasn't there. But but here's what we do know. (laughs) I mean, this story is filled. It is ripe with sexual innuendo. The threshing floor is the place um, where the grain gets sifted and the whole agricultural world, this whole system is one that's built on fertility. 
and what you have to do in order to create, to produce fruit. And so uh, written into this whole concept of planting seed, you know, you've got seed, which is we think of as the seed that goes into the ground. It's also the word for semen. So you've got all of this kind of sexual innuendo throughout the story, right? He literally puts seed in her apron and sends her back, Mm -hmm. right? So there's all of this imagery that's just kind of abundant. So the text doesn't tell us, but the text definitely teases us. There are people who will draw a line in the sand and say, nothing happened. And I would say, how can you say that, A? (laughs) With a straight face. And B, what's at stake in that statement? Why is it important that nothing happened? Right. That was the emphasis in the telling of this story in my tradition growing up. We have to, <laughs> no, good girl would never we have do to this. preserve Ruth as the faithful Proverbs 31, which happens to fit within our current sexual ethic and purity culture. And, and so that's, that's so why. that none of you young people get any ideas. Right. That right. You go uncovering people's you can feet be now. A good person and uncover feet. <laughs> right. <laughs> None of that. None of that. Yeah. Well, that that does tie in, and, and we want to turn here in the last bit of our time. It resonates in terms of your work on post-colonial biblical studies and the reception of, of the Book of Ruth, and and that how that filter and how that way of thinking has shaped some of how you look at this book, and it seems to be tied some to this idea of enemies and cousins and outsiders and forced migration, and there's just a lot here. So what has that impact been for you? Yeah, I like to think of Ruth as a survival manual, and I like to think of it as a book about identity politics. I think that Israel is constantly struggling with her identity. This is a small nation that's surrounded by big nations. So she's constantly in a position of constructing and defending who she is over and against all of these other folks. That's why you have such strong narratives against the enemy. I may not be able to fight you, but I'm going to tell a really bad story about you. And you see this in the way that the other is constructed. What's interesting about Ruth is that if you read it through the lens of a post-colonial approach, one of the things you would say is that Israel definitely sees the Moabite as other. But in this story, it is also saying there's a moment in our history where we would not have made it without the stranger, the other, the foreigner. And when we look at the genealogy, it's also saying The foreigner isn't so foreign. The foreigner is our distant cousin. And so how do we reconcile the reality of our connection in humanity with our inclination to separate and divide? For people who are pressed to uphold the historical accuracy of every phrase and every word in the Bible— The Bible tells us that we all came from one person, from two people. I shouldn't say one, he didn't do it by himself, Um, but from two people, which means technically we all share the same blood. How then do we construct all of these theories around superiority and inferiority and how this group has more rights or this person gets more privilege when in fact we all share the same blood? The only way to justify the oppression of other people is to make them something other and less than. What the story of Ruth does is take a most hated 
other and put her in a role of exhibiting hesed, the faithfulness that the word that we use to describe God's faithfulness, and as someone who has chayil, you mentioned the, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 and the sense of the strength that she has. So in those ways, Ruth sets herself out as this wonderful example of a foreigner. The downside of this, of course, is that Ruth is so good that it also introduces this sense of exceptionalism, this idea that, well, we can bring in a few others, but they have to be really, really good. That's some of the tension in the story. I'm hoping that we read it to say this is an introduction or an an invitation for us to see the way that God works through the person that we deem other. And two, that our survival depends on us seeing God working through that other. Yeah. We need to bring this to a close, unfortunately. But just one side comment that you mentioned the Chayil, which is Proverbs 31 woman. I seem to recall that Ruth appears right after that's Proverbs. correct. Right. That's and, correct. and that's the connection they're making right. yes. in, in, the, in the Hebrew canon rather than the other, like, let's say, the historical narrative kind of connection. That's right. right. The Megilot can be ordered in one of two ways. But in one ordering, it is in the first spot, which means it comes right after Proverbs, which would be lovely. Yeah. And I think that's whenever we sometimes think that there is, it's always been a certain way. I think <laughs> allowing for this diversity and seeing, and sometimes even the older traditions make connections outside of the things that we've privileged, say, over the last three or 400 years. That's right. It, it's, it really matters where you start telling the story. <laughs> Absolutely. It sure does. Well, thank you so much, uh, Judy, for jumping on. And I really. This was just plain it. fun. I, it was. This is fun talking about Ruth with you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to the Bible for normal front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by The Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, and Jessica Schau. And if you really are interested in uncovering the feet, you know, there's this whole thing about a night demon or a river demon. Oh, that, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you can why not? look into that. Oh, <laughs> what is it? Where do we find this? Well, the question is, why, what is it? Why does Boaz say, I'll try to find the reference for you. Who are you? What does he, what does he think? Oh. And there's this idea that, you know, men can never... Um, lose semen without blaming someone. And so if you have any kind of, well, this goes to your question of what actually happens is if you have some kind of nocturnal emission, then it's a night demon. Right. So is that what he thinks is going on with Ruth? And if so, then there was more going on.
Right, mm. right, right. Yeah. Gosh. That, that makes sense. That's oh, a that's whole episode right there on night demons and <laughs> nocturnal emissions. Gosh. Ah, the Bible. Yes. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> 